0: And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: In June, U.S. Ambassador to Hungary, David Pressman, who's gay, gave a moving and courageous speech at the opening of a Pride event in Budapest. Here's a small part of it.
0: History teaches us when governments start discriminating against one group, whether for who they love or what they believe, their politics, their race, the color of their skin, others are usually not far behind. It begins with innocent sounding laws to protect the children. But then we are asked to report on our neighbors, our friends, and our families. Ghettos of the mind, ghettos in our politics, and ultimately ghettos in our communities are built brick by brick. The silence of many is the mortar sealing our fates. Good people who believe in their bones never again must never forget how it begins. The path to the unthinkable isn't built overnight. It is taken step by step and it is paved with hate, opportunism, and complicity. It was a forthright
1: challenge to the government of Viktor Orban, the prime minister who has targeted gay people, and has made media censorship of political opposition one of the tools of his autocratic-leaning regime. Pressman's speech was just the latest chapter in an extraordinary career that has marked him as one of the world's leading human rights advocates in the practice of law and through numerous postings in government. He's used his platforms to fight for the vulnerable and the voiceless throughout the world. I spoke with him recently about that journey, and here's that conversation. Ambassador David Pressman, that was a snippet of your uh, Pride Day speech uh, in Hungary on uh, June 16th. And it was such a wonderful, inspiring, brave, impactful speech that uh, I needed to reach out to you and I wanted to chat with you about it. Which we will do, but also about you, uh, because I know a little bit about you, and you are uh, a—you have an amazing story. You've led an amazing life, and uh, I kind of wanted to start there.
0: If it's okay with you, of course, David. It's great to be with you. Thank you for those nice words. Happy to start wherever you want.
1: Well, thank you for your impactful words, but we'll 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 get to that. So, uh, you are uh, a Californian. Uh, originally. I am. And you, you come from a a, a, Jew, a Jewish family in California. When did your family get to Cal- when did your family get to the US?
0: Well, my grandparents on both sides uh emigrated to the United States from uh Eastern Europe from Russia and Poland. Uh they arrived in uh one set in Brooklyn uh, and one set in Chicago actually. Uh they came with uh, as so many of their generation, with virtually nothing except ambitions and a belief in a better life in the United States of America, um, and uh, and their story is is really an inspiring one and a moving one to me. I mean, they they worked hard, and uh, my grandmother on on my mother's side tells stories about um, singing in the streets of Chicago to try to make money. Um, you know, literally as a busker. Um, hmm. my father, uh, my grandfather on my father's side was a factory worker. And in the way that, uh, American stories are, are, are truly American. And so uniquely American, they, they worked their way up. And, and ultimately I think from both Chicago and Brooklyn realized that life was better in California as, as many of us, as many of us come to realize, uh, maybe David, you will one day too. Um, and, uh, they settled down there and, and, and that's where I was, I was born and, and raised.
1: Yeah, I've made it as far as Arizona. I don't know if I'll get all the way out to out to California, but you you tell me about your dad, because he was a judge. He was a lawyer and I presume a great influence on your
0: direction in life. He is and he, he was and he is um, my my father, uh, both of my parents, my my mom and my dad were lawyers. Um but neither of them were particularly political. I, I mean my mom was actually a registered Republican. Uh my father was uh working as a lawyer in private practice. He actually started in San Francisco and and tried to open a restaurant at one point. Huh. Uh, wasn't it was not very successful. That turns out that's harder than 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 practicing law. But both of my parents uh were and continue to be um very uh, engaged and supportive of my work. I, I can't say that they always understand the choices that I make. I think when uh David I decided to go off to uh to Darfur, Sudan in the middle of a war, they sort of wonder to themselves, is this is this the right place for a, a Jewish boy from from California to be? But um but they've they've been steadfast in in support of me as i as I've tried to chart out work that I thought was important to do.
1: What in the work that you, you've done as a human rights lawyer globally, uh, as a, as a diplomat, as a, uh, official in the federal government really focused on, on human rights, what is it about the way you grew up that helped shape you in that way?
0: I wasn't grown up in a particular, um, we we didn't do philosophy and theory in the pressman house. It was very much about results and what mattered and what had impact. And did things make sense or did they not make sense? And I think that that ethos very much informed the work that I took on and continue to take on in government, which is trying to find paths and opportunities, not necessarily, I mean, you know, you've served in government, David, not necessarily to um, you know, be in prominent roles in government, not necessarily to get into the right meetings or to send up the right memos, but to actually have an opportunity to implement and affect policy that means something to people that has an impact on the ground. And I think, you know, one of the one of the um, things that I think is true for uh, young Jews in in the United States, but around the world, is hearing from our, uh, our our the generations before us about World War II and the Holocaust, and certainly the lessons of the Holocaust and the ethos and commitment of "never again" was something continues to be something that animates my professional work. In some cases, directly on issues involving war crimes and mass atrocities, work that I did at the White House and as our ambassador in New York and the Security Council, and sometimes indirectly in the work that I try to do in our day-to-day work, both in our bilateral relationship with Hungary, but also in my work more generally in trying to ensure that U.S. policy is standing up for and advocating for the rights of the most vulnerable.
1: Your family history has something to do with Because you can have an impact in so many different ways in government. You could have been an environmental activist. You could have promoted trade. You could have you could have done any number of things. But this is where you've devoted. This is the cause to which you've uh, devoted your life, and your family history seems to be a big part of that. I think that's true.
0: The casework that a lawyer does, right? I mean, often when I think about human rights work, generally, I think about the objective is really to create sort of the positive exception. It's it's not different than handling a case for an individual or a private litigant. You're trying to find the one example, the one case where you can shift the trajectory of that person's life or the, the set of circumstances that has brought that person to seek accountability or seek justice in a way that will set an example for others and so you know so much of the work that um i mean the work that my family did was and it continues to be very different than the work that i do but the commitment to trying to do right of pursuing justice of um having an impact and not just talking the talk um i think is is you know my parents are are extraordinary people and um and they, despite their hesitations at various points in various strange places that I've gone off to in my career, you know, I'll, I'll they're they're big believers in me. I mean, I, I won't forget David the um, the first day I sat down behind the placard that said United States at the United Nations Security Council, and this was. Uh, at a time that Russia was represented by Vitaly Churkin, who has since passed away. And it was yes. right as right as Russia had invaded Ukraine for the first time. And the exchanges were pitched and intense every day between the U.S. representative, uh, my boss, Ambassador Power, and, and, uh, and Ambassador Churkin. And the first time I sat in that chair... You know, I remember the night before my mom calling me and telling me, and she believed it, that Vitaly Churkin was very nervous about who is David Preston that's going to be in the chair for the United States. I can assure you that he wasn't, but it goes to, it's a it's a testament to my parents' unwavering belief in me, which I obviously am grateful for.
1: I have to ask you this because of what's going to on both in the Middle East and, and at home. I recognize you may be limited by your the, the office that you hold now the, the 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 job you have now in the State Department, but how are you processing all of this because on the one hand, I mean I can speak for myself because i 'm also the son i 'm the son of a refugee from Eastern Europe who experienced violence and antiSemitism but the attack on October seventh was uh, the The words "never again" sort of rang in my ears, and I Absolutely. think in the ears of many Israelis. But you, you, you've witnessed what uh, the reaction of the world, uh, and to particularly younger Americans, to the Israel's response and the innocents who've been caught up in that. And how do you, as someone who's devoted your life to a Jewish American who's devoted your life to human rights, how do you process all of that?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is I, I I relate to the questions you're asking and the experience you had on, on October seventh. And I think, David, uh so many of us can in uh what was this horrific carnage and massacre that um was shocking. Even even if it's not unexpected in some respects, it's shocking. And one thing I've taken uh great comfort in and been inspired by candidly david is and i know speaking with the representatives of israel here and and elsewhere that um that israelis have have similarly been inspired by is the strength of the president's response and leadership and and even the secretary of state's you know his 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 own remarks on this topic have been you know i know the secretary i've known the secretary for a long time and when you listen yeah. to him speak about what's happening And the importance of Israel's ability to defend itself while at the same time uh, respecting international humanitarian law. These are hard choices. This is a hard moment. And luckily, uh, the United States recently confirmed its ambassador to Israel, a very competent Jack Lew. Former colleague of mine in the White House. Indeed, um, who I know is going to do extraordinary work there.
1: But, you know, you say you you hail the president for the strength of his reaction. This has created a bunch of political problems for him here at home because there are a lot of people who probably have marched side by side with you on Darfur and other issues who believe that Israel is going too far and in that they are— you know there there's so much collateral damage yeah uh and that and and they had a hard time with this but you you saw a member of congress you know essentially accuse the president of abetting a genocide now you've actually dealt with genocide so you probably have some views on that but there is a cost to it and I'm as a member of the a leader of the human rights community how you balance these things
0: the questions that are being asked are serious questions uh they're not questions that i have responsibility for as the u.s ambassador to hungary but they're obviously as the u.s citizen questions that 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 i'm asking and looking at as we see the news what i what i can tell you david is that in my work um and and most specifically in my work in new york when i was u.s ambassador to the united nations security council um we I saw pretty close on a daily basis a very robust effort to delegitimize Israel. And part of our policy as the US government and part of the work that President Obama, Secretary Kerry and, and Ambassador Power were focused on, uh, um, was trying to combat that delegitimation campaign. And so these all of the questions you're raising about the the, and and these are the proportionality and the distinction and the compliance with international humanitarian law are really important. And that's why the president and secretary of state have emphasized them and the importance of them in Israel. Um, but I think it would be um, both uh, inappropriate for me from Embassy Budapest to comment further on that. Um, I can tell you that... Um, that these are uh, issues that have affected, uh, obviously, the United States government, the State Department to its core, and that um, our leadership and the government is very focused on on addressing them and engaging with Israel in a way that will help Israel defend itself and comply with international humanitarian law. What's the impact in Eastern Europe and yeah. in
1: the, you know you have another we have another war going and we'll talk about this after the invasion of Ukraine and what role do you think Vladimir Putin is playing passively behind the scenes if any
0: in events in the Middle East well i think there's li- little question that Putin is taking opportunities to undermine democracy anywhere it may exist including in the United States and including in Israel and certainly um, exercising malign influence here in Hungary. Um, the, the, the reality is that, and this is one of the reasons why, um, I was so, um, excited for the opportunity to represent the United States in Hungary is that democracies around the world are, you know, there's this phrase, David, about democratic backsliding. Um, and it's not a, it's not a term I like, because it sort of suggests that everyone is, you know, trying to do their best to advance democracy and is sort of slipping backwards down Mount Olympus as they, as they climb up the mountain. Uh, when in fact, it's not democratic backsliding, it's that democracies are actually under attack. Um, and one of the dynamics I've seen here in Hungary, I mean, you ask about Putin, is you can see ideas that are germinating in straight up authoritarian countries like Russia uh, propagating like a virus to countries like Hungary and being ingested and adopted by their legislature, whether in the form of anti LGBT laws, anti NGO laws, foreign registration laws, uh, in ways that are really dangerous. Obviously, your
1: relationship with Viktor Orban, the, the leader of, uh, of Hungary, has been freighted and difficult over these very issues. But let let us, uh, I want to return to the thread of your own life. Sure. You know, one one other thread, and this led to the speech that we heard an excerpt from in the beginning, is that you're also a gay man. And how formative was that in your upbringing and your awakening and your uh, sense of uh, advocacy that we see so fully today? I mean, huge
0: and defining. We began this conversation talking about, in some ways, my roots in Judaism and in many respects, equally defining uh, for how I've thought about issues and challenges in the world is the fact that I am gay. Um, And, you know, David, I I remember when I was one of my first jobs uh, and certainly my first real job in government was working for then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And I remember sitting in my office, which was across from the Secretary's office, and watching as James Hormel, who was, at the time, was the first out gay man to be appointed to serve as a U.S. ambassador, I think, to Luxembourg, couldn't be confirmed and had to be recess-appointed by President Clinton. And I remember... The thoughts that I was having then about internalizing what limits that meant for me in my own future, not that I necessarily imagined ever that I would have the opportunity to serve as a US ambassador, but the possibility of the kinds of impediments to being able to excel and engage were not imaginary. I watched them. Uh, Um, And I think that I've been fortunate for whatever reason, foolhardiness or, or, or audaciousness—I don't know—to um, to try to grapple with these challenges forthrightly and directly. Um, and um, I think the amount of progress that we've been able to make on LGBT issues in the United States and around the world, candidly, is completely remarkable. Um, and whatever small part I'm able to play in that, um, I, I think is is one of is something that makes me makes me proud. Yeah, the pace
1: and breadth of that progress over such a short period of time is it has been extraordinary but i'm just when did you come out and uh, when you were a kid back in california w- were there challenges associated with that and um oh, yeah. i'm just uh, sort of interested in, in the earlier history
0: yeah no i didn't i didn't come out of the closet i certainly wasn't out of the closet when i was living in california i didn't come out of the closet until just after graduating from college uh i mean it it is extraordinary for me to watch uh young gays and lesbians now who are able to um to to come out um a- and come to terms with their own identities so much earlier david that must have been painful yeah no it was painful i mean how'd you navigate that i mean i i navigate. it was it was extremely painful and um it was uh I, you know i think i think there's a, a reckoning that there's, there's actually an amazing line in not to quote Tony Kushner and Angels in America, but he writes of Roy Cohen describing uh, what homosexuals are, and I, I won't actually use the quote, but he says that homosexuals are not men who sleep with men, but they're men who are powerless. And I didn't want to be powerless, and so a lot of my work has been about working to advance uh, and empower vulnerable people whether they be gay people or 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 minorities and for me you know i found comfort and empowerment in the work in doing the work of changing minds of of trying to make progress on uh, on these issues
1: we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files
0: Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now, back to the show.
0: We talked a moment ago about how quickly change happens. I mean, you, David, you served in, in the Obama administration. You made the Obama administration possible in many respects. And... Well. That's generous. O- overdone, but generous. But thank you. You, yeah. played, you played an important role, I think everyone would acknowledge. And, you know, when we started that administration, uh, at least in the multilateral space, gay organizations couldn't literally couldn't even get a seat at a table, couldn't even get accreditation to come to a meeting in a room at the United Nations. And when we ended that administration, not only did were we able to get LGBT organizations' accreditation so that they could literally show up and participate in conversations we managed to galvanize the international community to adopt the first UN resolution in history that, that said that uh, that gay rights are human rights we managed to uh, convene the first Security Council meeting in history on LGBT issues in the context of of the treatment of ISIL uh, of the gay community and I'll never forget, Uh, and one of the things I'm most proud of in some respects, is uh, securing the first time in the 70 or 80 year history of the U.N. Security Council the only product that ever mentioned sexual orientation, which is something that uh, we secured uh, on the day of the Pulse nightclub shooting. So going from not having a seat at the table to the kind of work that was possible, I would have never guessed that that was achievable. Yeah. But
1: it's, it's fast and it's important. And I'm sure it means so much to you, having uh, lived the life you've lived. And that was evident in this speech that you gave on Pride Day in Hungary, where there is an active uh, effort on the part of the government to isolate, to discriminate against uh, people who are gay. Uh, you, You said the truth is that there are Hungarian kids today struggling with who they are and who they love they yearn to be proud of themselves, proud of their country, and proud to build their future within it. And it is also a truth that they are often told through laws and statements of their political leaders and their media megaphones that they have something to hide, that they should not be proud of themselves, that their country is not proud of them, and that they have no future in Hungary. And I couldn't help thinking when I heard you read those lines uh, that, you were speaking, and I'm sure everyone there understood that you were speaking, in some ways, from the basis of your own experience, and that's what made it so powerful.
0: Well, and thank you, thank you for for saying that. And of course, you know, part of um, part of being, I think, an effective ambassador anywhere is, and probably not dissimilar to being an effective communicator or politician or legislator, is by being prepared to make yourself vulnerable. Um, and connecting with the audience. But, but the audience in that room, which you didn't hear from, were these extraordinary Hungarian activists. I mean, that was sort of the point, is I knew in making those remarks that the government-controlled media would focus on the U.S. ambassador and what the U.S. ambassador said. But what I was really focused on was less my own story or, or, or what I brought to that speech but about the people i was speaking to who at great mm-hmm. risk to themselves on a daily basis are standing up and trying to introduce themselves not only to their own family but to their own country to secure the most modicum forms of dignity in in hungary and under hungarian law and it was important for the united states to stand with them and that's what that's what i sought to do but but yes you know like I, as i said in the in the speech david that you're referencing i mean i've lived My very first meeting here with a a senior government official, I I sit down and the official says to me, so, you know, Ambassador, I know you want to talk about transgender rights and gay rights and gender ideology. And I actually had to interrupt him and say, no, no, I actually want to speak to you about your relationship with Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's this effort (laughs) to sort of encode everything I do in this country through the lens of gayness, in part because it's convenient for them politically. But in this context, in this setting and to this audience, I thought it was really important to speak to them from the truth that I know, the truth that the United States know, and and that the president supports, which is how important the work they're doing is to advance human dignity in Hungary and around the world.
1: I mean, for a whole range of reasons, Hungary is an important place for the U.S. to have a presence and a voice, because that has been one of the countries where what you describe as democratic backsliding, whether you like the phrase or not, has, has occurred. Uh, just one last question about gay issues there. You knew when you took this posting that Orban and his party had, and his government had promoted and they advanced more while you were there, but promoted an anti-gay agenda. Was that part of the reason why you wanted this particular posting?
0: It certainly was a feature of it. I, I wanted this posting because I thought I could make a difference. And I saw Hungary at the center of a conversation about uh, about democracy around the world. Uh, part of that conversation are the human rights issues, including the human rights issues affecting the LGBT community here. Part of that conversation is, is the kind of coziness that the Hungarian government is demonstrating with authoritarian regimes, including Russia at a time where we have a land war next door and Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. But yes, I thought it was, I thought it was important for the United States, um, especially having gone through what we have gone through as a country for us to have a model of being able to voice and stands firmly for American values and principles in an environment like this where it really matters. And, you know, I would just say, I, I, I just to hearken back to the Albright days for a second. I remember, I mean, if you go back at the time I worked for secretary Albright, she was the highest ranking woman in the history of the United States government. And I remember, and you you'll probably remember the questions being asked when, you know, when she goes to meet with Arab countries, will she wear a headscarf? Will, will yes, you know, these, right. these questions of first impression, which in some ways were innocent, but were also so meaningful. And yeah. there was no question then that when Secretary Albright showed up, she was speaking for the president of the United States and she was representing the United States of America. And of course she wasn't wearing a headscarf. She was more than Madeleine Albright. She was the secretary of state. And in a smaller way, not to compare myself to my my. my my, my past friend and mentor, but, uh, you know, I'm the ambassador of the United States and it is also true that I'm a gay man and uh, those things can live, uh, in parallel with each other. And there is no question that the government, including the prime minister and others in the government are hearing what we are saying at a time of enormous consequence for the U S Hungary relationship. And that's, that's, that's what I'm focused on.
1: Talk about Madeleine Albright. I mean, you went to work at the State Department right after graduating from college. You must have been in your early 20s and you ended up as a special assistant to Albright. How did, how did that happen? How is it that you
0: wound up there? Luck. I mean, really, really luck. It's, and, and the title special assistant, you know, I sometimes, I actually joked about this with Secretary Albright before she passed away. It's, you know, I like to think, carry, hold myself out as, you know, this great, this great strategic advisor to the Secretary of State. Really, I assume you were a body a body. I person. was. I was the guy who carried the first female Secretary of State's purse around the world whenever she whenever she went anywhere. And yeah. But you got to go with her, which must have been quite an education. It was. It was. It was an education. It was my introduction and university and graduate school in foreign policy, uh, all in condensed in a very intense period of time. And I... Also learned, you know, I learned from her. I, I saw, you know, we were talking earlier about sort of never again. And I, I remember uh, listening to and speaking to Secretary Albright about Rwanda and sort of the ghosts of Rwanda and hearing how that had had haunted and affected her. Um, and I think in many respects, that's what encouraged me when I left the State Department to focus on issues involving uh internationally mentoring law and war crimes and genocide
1: you went to law school after that, and that's the area that you focused on. Tell me about Darfur yeah because probably there the, no one has been more intensely involved in that uh, in that issue H- how did you come to be involved in that issue and uh, and and tell me about the experience over time
0: my interest in Darfur really directly tethers to my work for secretary Albright and my, um, and my both interest in and ultimately work on Rwanda. Um, I had spent just a little bit of time in Rwanda working and studying the transitional justice mechanisms that Rwanda used to try to deal with the overwhelming backload of, uh, accused participants in the genocide, um, called the gachacha process. But, you know, when, when the war, um, and genocide in in sudan uh began i was determined to figure out a way to engage and to work on the problem um and managed to find my way to sudan um and this is i guess probably 2005 and quickly you know <sighs> There's a lot of things when when you when you go to a, a, a war zone um, that are sort of surprising, and and one of them was less less so in Darfur and more in Khartoum. It was sort of the banality of it all. You know, Hannah Arendt writes about the banality of evil, and you know, here I was in Khartoum, I was having a cappuccino, and across the country there was this awful bloody war happening. Uh, and then when I was in Darfur, just a real recognition, David, of oh my god, like. The absolute last thing these people need is you know a lawyer from New York, so like, like i am I am the last thing that needs to be sent by the international community, but in fact there there I was, and so when I left Sudan, I was determined, and this was in the George W. Bush administration. I was determined to raise awareness and raise help and try to translate what had not yet become what I think it ultimately became, which is a topic around dinner table conversations and churches and mosques and synagogues, but to make this a centerpiece of the conversation in American political life. And I didn't know how to do it. Uh, So I started, you know, I started as best as I could, trying to go out and give talks and and uh, and, of course, didn't have much reach. I'm wondering how that experience and what you saw,
1: the horrors you saw there firsthand how they changed
0: you, how they impacted on you. Dramatically, dramatically. You know, even upstairs in my office, I'm speaking at, from, from a conference room in, in the embassy that I run, and in my office upstairs, there's a photo of a kid who I still remember, uh, and he's holding up a drawing, and it's a drawing of things he couldn't communicate in words to me of what he had seen done to his village and you see in the drawing the Antonov planes coming over and bombing his village. You see the Janjaweed militia coming in with their guns and killing women and children. And then you see them burning down the huts. And this is all in, 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 in a little pictogram, basically. And you also see in his eyes... How old was this child? At the time, he was probably 15 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you take that in, I mean, if you're you are you don't have to be a human rights lawyer. When you listen to people who are in and have seen such horrendous, uh, the, the, the worst humanity has to offer, um, it has to beckon uh, a, a response and a commitment to engage. Um, and so when I left, I was um, I, I actually, you know, S- Samantha Power and I actually, we met in a green room uh, at CNN um, and got in a huge fight. Like the first conversation I had with uh, Samantha Power was over Darfur, and we got in a huge fight over the efficacy of the African Union peacekeeping mission there. I mean, this is sort of how hot I was about <laughs> this whole thing, and and that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship, huh? indeed, and collaboration. <laughs> no, I mean it really was, and it's and it's it's a it's a fight that continues to this day. We still you know are engaging with each other on issues of accountability and justice and. Uh, and uh, and security uh, in and around the region and, and elsewhere. But in leaving, I was introduced to George Clooney, who was interested through his father, who was interested in working on these issues, and I had a lot of skepticism about it. I didn't know, I didn't know famous people. Uh, I just, certainly didn't know George. Um, but about a week after meeting him. I was on a plane headed back. And this time I was on a plane headed back with one of the world's most famous people who had pledged and who I believed and, and and who in fact did do an enormous amount to try to elevate the political conversation around the genocide in Darfur.
1: Yeah, that's been an ongoing relationship, I guess, up to your appointment here. But you you've worked with George Clooney and his wife, Amal, who's a human rights lawyer, global human rights lawyer in her own right, powerful voice. You've established a foundation, Help them establish a foundation. Yeah, talk a bit about that, about the power of celebrity, because, you know, there is a temptation to think of celebrities who go do these things as kind of dilettantes, but this has been a real cause for Clooney and continues to be
0: yeah i was as as skeptical david as 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 they come when i was going to meet uh george for the very first time we had dinner at a restaurant in new york um and i went into that discussion thinking uh almost looking back in sort of an obnoxious way of um this is you know a celebrity who you know wants to raise their profile on an issue uh, of relevance of the day and over the course of that dinner conversation it what became clear to me and has certainly become clear in the decades since i mean we've been working together on and off now i guess for two decades is that it's not i mean he uh has had an incredible career as a as a writer as an actor as a director but he also is a very engaged citizen and whether you agree with his politics or not he is de- and has been determined to use his celebrity in a way to advance justice for vulnerable people like those in Darfur and so you know there there's there's an endless cascade of sort of interesting and funny stories of what it was like for me who was sort of just coming out of a war zone and trying to advocate to stop uh, a genocide encountering this really famous person who hadn't yet been there but wanted to do something i mean i remember when we were flying over there actually on the plane david um i hope i don't get in trouble for telling this story i don't think i will but um i had explained to george that you know people won't know who he is in sudan which was an unusual feeling for him um and they certainly wouldn't know who he was in darfur And so he approached me on the flight over. He said, you know, David, I I have a plan. Um, And because you told me that people won't know who I am, I'm bringing this along. And he took out of his pocket a crinkled up copy of the cover of People magazine, Sexiest Man Alive. (laughs) And he showed it to me and said, in case we get in a pinch, I'm going to show them this. And I, of course, said, George, you know, you can't show them this. This will mean that they'll, you know, they'll kill me to prove they're serious about hurting you. So we, we ultimately found our way through uh, this, this, little, this little comedy. But um, George and his wife, all are, are uh, incredible friends and inc- incredible champions of causes that are, are so important.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right
2: back with more of The Axe Files.
1: And now, back to the show. You had a series of jobs in the Obama administration, director for war crimes and atrocities on the National Security Council, assistant secretary of Homeland Security. And then, as you mentioned, uh, you went to the U.N. with your old friend Sam Power, who became the ambassador, where you we're able to work on human rights issues there. I'm interested in your view of working from outside the government and working from inside the government yeah. and how those roles differ, because you're obviously somewhat bridled when you're inside the government. Uh, you're reflecting the policy of an administration. You're trying to affect that policy from within, but you're also representing it. Uh, so you might be able, you you may be limited in what you can say and do. Uh, but just tell me about that and the
0: the experience of going in and out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I remember a conversation I actually had with uh, Harold Coe, who was and is a great lawyer who once told me early on, he's like, you're going to have to choose counsel to the State Department under the Obama administration, That's right, yeah. legal advisor at state. And he's he's he said to me at one point, I don't know if it was when we were already at state or before, but he said, you know, you're going to have to choose. Do you want to affect change from inside or do you want to affect change from outside? And I think Harold is one of the wisest people I've ever met, but I don't think you have to choose. Um, The tactics are different for sure, but the work is sort of the same. And when I think about the work and the achievements that um, I'm most proud of that are accomplished by my teams that I've been fortunate to lead, whether in New York or here in, in Hungary, it's work that fundamentally like happens because we want it more than the people who are opposed to it. So when we're, you know, trying to whip votes in the UN General Assembly to isolate Russia in twenty fourteen because they invaded Crimea. Um like, it was more important to the United States and to our allies and partners to isolate them than it was for Russia to do the work to defeat it. And when we wanted um, to advance LGBT rights through UN resolutions and normative development, soft law development, um, it, of the kind that we saw, that, you know, I went through a list earlier and this like, this is not made up stuff. We made progress. And it happened because we brought sort of the same grit, the same work ethic, the same relentlessness that you associate candidly with people outside of government. I mean, I think one of the great um, perils of uh, serving in senior positions in government that I've tried to avoid uh, at all costs is, you know, I've now, this is my second time as U.S. ambassador. I've worked for four cabinet secretaries directly, three presidents. There is not a day where i am being us ambassador i am i am trying to do things and there is so much to be done in this relationship at this moment that is an important relationship to the united states it's an important relationship to the nato alliance and it's in a precarious place because we have a leader of this country in hungary who is making choices That are bringing him closer and closer, and deepening and expanding his relationship with the Russian Federation at a time where all of the allies and partners are making different choices. And so, how we shape that, and how we make the choices clear and create accountability for those choices is important. Um, And it's work that I and my team wake up every day energized and focused on, and we believe in.
1: I really want to talk about Orbán and Hungary, but just on the issue of human rights. Assess where we are globally right now. Are we on the the upswing or the
0: downswing? Well, David, I, I consider myself an optimist, but we're 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 not in a great place. And these are harrowing days. And part of the way I think we change the trajectory, and this is true for democracy and is true for human rights. Um, I think the two go hand in hand, individual dignity and individuals trust in governing institutions. They run together. And as I began, I think both are under attack and it's incumbent upon all of us, particularly those of us who are privileged to serve in positions like the one I'm in to do everything we can. To create the opportunity, sort of, for that positive exception. I mean, this is the other thing I would just go back to if I could, which is these problems can seem so big that what, in some ways, we just, you, to make change, you just have to focus on the small, you know, go small, the individual life, the individual choices. And uh, as you sort of move through government service, you have opportunities to have that effect magnified for sure. But this is not a time for backbenching for anyone who cares about human dignity and who cares about democracy.
1: Yeah. And those things are linked because it feels like the absence of rules and laws and norms and institutions that democracy provides, the lack of the erosion of global rules and laws and norms and institutions is directly related to, or is is a, a cause of erosion in human rights. Indeed. The, so these two problems are
0: linked. Totally agree. I mean, look, we're seeing a set of Around the world of political actors who have found that they can profit by turning us against each other, that they can profit by undermining our trust in governing institutions. They can profit by undermining our faith in basic fact, and they can profit through straight up corruption. And what that means is the people on whose back those trades are often made are the people who are the least powerful. Who are the most vulnerable, whether they it be racial minorities or gay people or women or whoever. And so, at moments like this, and in, including in, in some respects here in Hungary, having a clear voice and candor about what we're seeing, seriousness of political outreach about trying to address those concerns, and where necessary accountability, I think is critical. And I think that the United States can play a unique role in all respects.
1: Let me ask you a question I asked. Uh, Secretary Blinken, he visited my Institute of Politics um, in uh January uh at the University of Chicago. And I asked him about the sort of tensions between the strategic imperatives of a country and human rights. Uh this was I think shortly after, I think it was either shortly after, shortly before, but when Modi of India visited the White House, and there was a state dinner in his honor. It's obviously come up relative to uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Mohammed bin Salman there, uh, given his association with uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the, the journalist, and so on. And, you know, he gave, I thought, a very honest answer, but I'm interested in yours, which is, where do you draw the lines between i mean india is obviously of huge strategic importance because of china and uh, the tensions between china and the us where do you draw the lines where you say we are going to make human rights a priority and we are going to step back and we're not we're going to mute our concerns about that at least publicly because we have bigger fish to fry
0: yeah It's a great question. I would sort of challenge the premise in some respects, because my answer to the question is, I I don't think you actually have to draw lines. You do have to make choices, for sure. And there are moments in relationships where uh, certain interests are going to be prioritized over other interests. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that promoting a world that respects human dignity and human rights is not an American interest. It is our interest. It's not just a value, it's in our strategic interest. It's in our strategic interest as a country to have countries that are uh, respecting of rules. It's in our strategic interest as a country to have uh, countries that respect the democratic will of their people. And so in using some of the specific examples, which I won't engage on specifically, David, but the, the, the examples that you raise. Of course, there are going to be times where in government, you're going to be focused and prioritizing certain interests over other interests. But the point is that you have to make sure that you're constantly evaluating and allowing all of the interests to inform what is going to serve the United States and and international peace and security uh, most formidably and um, and 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 best. And I think that, um, you know, it's it, it, often in the international justice space, you, you get posed the question: Do you do you want to do you want to have peace? Do you want to have a peace agreement, or do you want to have accountability? Peace or justice? You know, as if the two are in opposition. But the reality is, when you look at history, you don't get a sustainable peace without a measure of justice. You know, and so, um, I mean, I. <sighs> I think, about, I think about people like Ratko Mladic, you know, the Serbian general who uh, oversaw the worst massacre in Europe since World War II at the time, the, the genocide in Srebrenica, and who is, you know, for 15 years after the genocide, is um, on is a fugitive and, and no one can find. And I think about the investment that we put, the United States put, in trying to find him and to bring him to justice. And the reason we did that is both because it's important, it's the, it's the value proposition, it's important that people who commit genocide are held accountable, but it's also because you can't have sustainable peace unless people who witness their brothers and their fathers um, and their sons being raped and killed see that their lives also matter. And so I guess in terms of the tension between rights and, and interests, I would say rights, human rights are an interest. And as you evaluate decisions, as you would evaluate any other decision, at certain points, certain things are going to become more pressing, but they can never take a back seat or be dismissed. This is a very relevant
1: discussion as it pertains to the Middle East, where we started. I reject the sort of glib. I am outraged by justifications of what Hamas did, but I also reject sort of glib but "what aboutism." But for a long period of time, the United States has Strongly advocated a two-state solution. Strongly advocated Palestinian rights, and you were involved in some of that at the UN. And those admonitions, those pleas, those urgings have uh, often been ignored. Yeah, and that is a long-term problem and will continue to be uh,
0: unless it's resolved. Indeed, and 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 just to take it, if I could. Back to Hungary, because it's a parallel example in in certain respects, and I can speak more freely about it, I suppose, is that for a long time, I mean, candidly, the previous administration, the Trump administration, and and with respect, the Obama administration as well, we sort of ignored Hungary. We didn't pay a lot of attention to it because we could and we asked for things, but maybe they weren't delivered, perhaps not dissimilar to the situation you're describing elsewhere. But in the Hungary context, Come February 24th of last year with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we can no longer ignore what's happening here. And it's important to us as a country that our security interests, our secure, the U.S. security interests, NATO security interests, are uh, forefront and taken seriously. And so, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, David, if I could, which is we had this situation here where um, across you know, two administrations, President Trump's administration and then President Biden's administration, we had this entity in Hungary called the International Investment Bank, which was a a Kremlin platform. Uh, I mean, it was doing a lot of things, David, but I don't think banking was sort of top of list for the International Investment Bank. And the previous administration insisted that the government of Hungary shut it down and they ignored them. And we insisted, that the government of Hungary shut the thing down, and they ignored us. I mean, the last meeting I had with a senior uh, government official on this topic, I said, you need to shut down the International Investment Bank. This is a Kremlin platform inside of NATO, inside of the European Union. The response I got was, shut it down. We're going to increase our shares of that. And so we designated the bank. We sanctioned the bank, something we don't do often inside of NATO territory. And within 24 hours, the bank was shut down. In 48 hours, the bank was shut, pushed out of, of Hungary by the prime minister himself. And it just goes to show you that at a certain point, accountability does matter. And it's applied differently in different countries at different times around the world. But here, we're, we're, we're pretty focused on our security interests at a time where we have a land war next door.
1: Orban, you, you say uh, Trump was indifferent to Hungary, but he actually... Considers Orban a kindred spirit, and, and so does the American right. And he's, you know, you can see parallel playbooks in terms of, you know, the uh, constriction of rights, the control of the, me- you know, or, or attempt to control the media, the uh, vilification of people who have opposing views, or media outlets that are viewed as, as shining too bright a light in dark corners. Isn't that the Orban
0: story? Part of it, there, there is without question a flirtation between segments of the political community in the United States and this government in Hungary. But what I would want to emphasize is that um, one of the things that I've taken great solace in as U.S. ambassador to Hungary is that in my engagement with uh, officials on the Hill and the House and the Senate from both parties, that are involved in foreign policy and national security decision-making, there's actually great consensus on the concerns around Hungary. I mean, I've had some of the most conservative members of the United States Senate out here, and uh, their voice with respect to what Prime Minister Orban is doing vis-a-vis Putin, vis-a-vis Beijing, is as clear and as strong as the administration's voice. And and I would just note, you know, what one specific example, if I could, David, is... And I can only speak about this publicly because uh, Ranking Member Risch has himself spoken about it publicly. I mean, the reason why arms sales are on hold to Hungary is not because of the actions of some Democrat. It's the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee who has articulated this uh, um, his concerns publicly with respect to their their holding up of Sweden. So there's consensus. There's more consensus than than the politics lets on. I would just I would just suggest.
1: And how threatening is. Orban's gravitation toward Putin, gravitation toward China as a a member of NATO, as a member of Europe, as a a member nation in Europe. What are the implications of that?
0: I mean, it's really worrying. This is, um, you know, rather where every other country in, in Europe has made extensive efforts to wean their dependence off of Russian energy. Hungary has done the reverse and increased its dependence upon Russian energy and is actually profiting from it with respect to the oil exemption it's secured in the sanctions regime. So it's basically it secured itself an exemption from the EU sanctions on the oil embargo and is then taking Russian oil in at a cheaper price, selling it and making a profit off of it. So it's indicative of a... Um, of a distance, and I think Hungary is as isolated as it has been ever from its European partners and perhaps from the United States, of a set of decisions that are all about very short-term decisions that um, that the government I- is making. And um, when we see the prime minister meeting with President Putin, um, you know, the first EU head of state to do so after President Putin Was indicted by the ICC for war crimes and the first NATO head of state to do so after the very early days of the war. It's extremely worrying, and that's what we're grappling with in our policy and and in our diplomatic engagement with the government of Hungary.
1: How's he dealing with you? I mean, you've been outspoken on a whole range of issues. How how has he dealt with you as as a outspoken ambassador who's really challenging him on a lot of different fronts?
0: Well, the, the government here controls the media. 85 uh, percent of the media in this country is either directly controlled or influenced by the government in a way that is corrosive, I think, to democracy, but is very specific. So when I read the news, I am often the front page of the news on virtually a daily basis. And David, it's not the most flattering coverage, I would, I would say, but it is um, very clear that The voice of the United States is being heard and being grappled with. I think that it's also clear to the prime minister and his government that the voice of the United States will not go soft, that we want to see and find a path forward, that this is not a relationship we're walking away from. It's actually a relationship we're leaning into. But done are the days where we're going to be ignored when we raise concerns about whether it's a Russian bank or it's the way that they're handing out passports in a a manner that compromises security, or it's with respect to their continued reliance on Russia for energy. We want to be and we will be taken seriously because this is an important moment.
1: Just as we go, you've been married for, what, 22, 23 years, something like that. You have a couple of kids and your family's there with you, correct? Yep. How, how's their experience been? How's your experience been as a family?
0: It's really interesting. My children love Hungary. They are having the most, what my children are about to turn 11. They love it here. They're having genuinely the most wonder. This is not the U.S. ambassador telling a positive tale. They are actually having an extraordinary experience because here's the thing, David, is despite the anti-gay rhetoric, the anti-American rhetoric, and that's really important. The rhetoric is, I would be getting the, the kind of attacks that we experience as the United States if I were gay or not gay. It's not about being a gay ambassador. It's being about the voice of the United States and being clear about the serious security concerns that we have in this relationship. But my kids, they're doing great and they're having a great time. And when I go places and interact with Hungarians, the interactions are universally positive and warm and engaging. So there's this political rhetoric That is entirely corrosive. I mean, we have ministers of this government, sitting ministers who describe the United States as a dead corpse whose nails keep growing. I mean, that's a quote. We have the most anti-American Kremlin propaganda being pushed out by the government through its media channels. And at the same time, there's a ton of goodwill and deep connections between Hungarians and Americans. And so my family's life, While unique because I have a certain profile in this country and unique because we are speaking quite candidly about some serious concerns that we have with this country and the the policies that its government is adopting, my family's life is quite great because Hungarians, I think, like Americans, want our countries to be closer together and are prepared to engage with each other as human beings, um, despite the dehumanizing rhetoric that its government continues to spew.
1: Well, Ambassador, thank you for your fervent representation there, for your assiduous representation there, and for all, you, for all you've done, for all the causes that you've worked on, and for being a great inspiration. It's, it's wonderful to spend some time with you.
0: David, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be with you, and always good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Lena Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.